let's take a look at the scriptures. First reading is Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty and concerning the things you have been taught. Now jump to Acts chapter 1, again, at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I had dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, a series dedicated to the apostles and what we can learn about discipling from them. And I've already veered off course. It's the second in the series and I'm already sharing from a guy who wasn't an apostle. <laughs> How many of you thought Luke was an apostle? Go ahead, be honest, admit it. I did once, right? Yeah. Once upon a time, it was just assumed by most of us, if we read the Bible at all, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John must be apostles because, you know, they're the gospel writers. Luke, in fact, wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but he's worthy of mention because if our goal is to learn from those who established the church and those for whom great esteem was, I don't know if I'm saying that the way I mean it, but people really revered these guys. And the reason they did was because they were anchored in their relationship with Jesus. And because they were anchored in their relationship with Jesus, people felt that they could anchor themselves in their relationship with the apostles, right? Because that was the safest way to make sure that they were living the new paradigm, the new faith in Jesus Christ. Luke was a guy who appears to have been a sort of investigative reporter. He's thought to be a doctor because the apostle Paul traveled with Luke uh, and received medical care from him, it seems. Um, Luke is considered the writer of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And certainly those introductions we just read would lend credibility to that. And Luke is also known to have been a companion of Jesus's mother, Mary. And I've been tempted at times to think of the Gospel of Luke as the Gospel of Mary. Now I hear that clearly because I'm not going into some sort of weird Gnosticism. I'm just saying that, that Mary was a close companion of Luke and Luke was using that relationship to get truth about this 
story of Jesus. And so we could say that Mary is all over the pages of Luke. Listen to his beautiful dialogue that we read at Christmas time. My soul magnifies the Lord. I mean, he's a pretty good writer on top of the fact that he seems to convey the deep emotion that you feel in Mary that I think is a rich gift to us. In the same way, the gospel of Mark is actually the gospel of Peter. You know, we'll learn more about that as we go along. But, you know, these, these things were more com, uh, complicated than we realize. And that's not a bad thing. That lends more believability to everything that we read in Scripture. But the thing I want you to get from this, uh, this using Luke in this passage or in this uh, series of messages about the apostles is how Luke transmitted the truth that the apostles were conveying about Jesus and how he was a vital part of that process. What then can we use from Luke to help inform our faith and the way that we transmit the faith to others? So we're trying to learn how to be disciples, seek disciples and change the world. We're learning through these guys about discipleship, outreach and evangelism. Okay, that's the goal in this series. And you know what's really cool is, is that if you take this greeting that Luke uses in both books to a guy named Theopolis, or maybe it's not a guy, there are some different stories in the various literature about this word and what it means, but no one can disagree with the fact that if it translates back to the ancient Greek, this means uh, essentially lover of God whether he's talking about a person that he has titled lover of God. So it could be a nickname for someone he thinks is particularly devout, but he could also just be saying, I'm writing this account or these accounts for the sake of everyone who gently desires to seek the truth. Now I'm rephrasing it that way because my interpretation is that Luke isn't interrogating people to find the truth He's investigating. There's a difference. Luke is communicating to people who are earnestly and honestly seeking rather than what we would call apologetics, which is a sort of militant defense of Scripture and the gospel. That's militant maybe seems like a strong word, but apologetics is a craft within the Christian thought process where you're, you're arguing for Christianity and against certain heresies that frequently come up. Or if not heresies, at very least, questions people always ask, you know. Well, what about people who never heard the gospel? And then you give them a certain answer that's been tried and true. That's apologetics. But that's not what Luke is doing. Theopolis is a person like you and me who's hungry for truth and who is more receptive because it comes in love, which means it's gentle, but it's firm. It means that you're gonna hear things that may not set well with you, but you will know because of the tone with which it's delivered and the sanctity that comes from the word with a capital W, that you're being gently corrected for the sake of, of spiritual growth and maturity. And so that leads me to something that I thought about when I was preparing for today's message, because back when I was going to school 
When I first went into ministry, it was in the mid-90s. I was making the transition from selling truck things to being a purveyor of the gospel. And I was taking classes and courses as was required of me, and most of it occurred in Chicago, to be specific, up in Evanston, Illinois. And around that same time, there was this guy named Lee Strobel who had become well-known because he was a well-known Chicago journalist, an investigative reporter even, and he had made himself kind of well-known in Chicago because he had done an investigative uh, report, you know, journalism that exonerated a guy who was falsely imprisoned for a crime that he didn't commit. And Lee was an avowed atheist. He didn't believe in God and he didn't believe in anything remotely similar to that, but he was married to a woman who did. And he was getting a little frustrated in their relationship because she was pressuring him to investigate Jesus. And so he set about, and all this happened in the early, late 90s, so I was right there, you know, where it was, you know, all the time I spent up there around Chicago, this was, this was developing in my presence, and I got to absorb that with other people who are interested. And he eventually decided the best way to shut his wife up was to do an investigation into Jesus and prove she's wrong. Now, here's where his story is so much like what I read in Luke that I just find it amazing. It, Luke didn't go in hostile. That's one thing we can say pretty obviously. He, he just wanted to know the truth. He was just hungry for truth. Lee wanted to prove that his wife was buying something that was just a fantasy. And so he did what investigative reporters do. He dug in and sought expert testimonies. He, he researched it thoroughly. I mean, he's really trying to disprove Christianity. I would suppose at some point early in his process, he was kind of vain. He was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's never been done. I'm going to prove that Christianity is not true. Well, Lee's written a lot of books since then, and he's pastored churches, and he's spoken all over the country. I guess you probably know by now, if you've ever heard of him, that he got his mind changed. He was trying to make the case against Christ, and he ended up making the case for Christ. And of course, that's his landmark book, The Case for Christ. I would recommend it to you if you are in any way looking for convincing information about the validity of the Christian story and the person of Jesus. But Luke did it first. And Luke would definitely be a good example of a case for Christ sort of investigative reporter. And here's what happened with Lee, and I think what happens with most of us when we take Christ seriously, when we look at Jesus honestly and investigate him, you have the benefit of scripture to help you. And that's why, you know, we encourage you to read the Bible as much as we do. And, and, and I encourage you to be a part of classes and small groups and, 
and uh, even work with me personally to, to, to have a grasp of these things in a more uh, uh, valuable way. But the bottom line is, is that what happened to Lee, what usually happens to all Christians, is Jesus becomes plausible, and then he becomes real in the historical sense. And then you begin to realize that you have this relationship with him, if only as in a historical context. And then there's the shift. So let me talk about that for a second. So you investigate Jesus without really having any reason to believe that what you've heard is real. But it sure is a good story. And you know, can I be honest? We don't do ourselves any favors in this culture. Because how, how many of you, I'm looking real hard around the congregation here because I don't want to create problems for anybody. But how many of you grew up with Santa Claus as an important part of your life? Right? How many of you had that radically changed at some point in your life? Did I get away with it? I hope. Well, that doesn't help when someone's telling you about another person who's really important in our lives at the same time, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> do I need to say any more? So what do you do? And I'll just tell you that in our family, we dealt with, with the uh, story of, of Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, and all that by just doing truth. You know, like there are true things you can say, absolutely true things. And we did. And I, I would say that that's a whole lot easier than, than trying to project a fantasy until they grow out of buying fantasy. Well, see, that's the problem that we run into with Christianity, too. We have a whole lot of Christians who have this fantastical idea about who Jesus is. You know, he's, he's a, a animated character. He's a caricature. See, that's what Lee's problem was. Lee saw Jesus as this caricature, as this not real person who had been formulated into this image that people worshipped, this idea that people worshipped, this fantasy. And so the first big change in his thought process is when he realized that this was a real person, that this man walked the earth, that this was a real human being. And there's no denying that. There's substantial historical evidence that Jesus was a real man. And along with that evidence is substantial evidence that he did things people could not explain away that made him certainly able to do miracles, that he certainly did miracles. Even regarding his death and resurrection, there was so much substantial evidence of his resurrection that no one historically can deny that. There's, there's proof. And the only reason that people deny certain things that the historical evidence presents is because they can't accept it. They don't want to believe it's true. You know, and, and so we run into that all the time. I mean, there's this historical truth about historical characters that we don't want to confront. My daughter and I were just talking about this yesterday regarding some other historical characters. And, and uh, uh, 
you would you would be dishonest if you didn't admit that there are things you just don't want to know about people that you think of, you know, in the historical context. You, you don't want to know certain things about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. There's things you just don't need because it rocks your story. It ruins the image you have in your mind and you just like it better the way that you used to have it. And people do the same thing with Jesus. But when we deal with Jesus, honestly, we open ourselves to knowing him. And knowing him makes all the difference. See, knowing about Jesus is one thing, but knowing him is the thing that will save your soul for eternity. Okay? And so what you need to realize is, is where you are on that continuum. Do you know him as a historical character? or do So just ask yourself, I've presented a few images and I'm actually working my way up to something here. And I want you to hear, like, do you see him as this caricature that for you isn't that different from Santa Claus? Is that where he is for you? Or do you see him as a real historical character who's knowable, but the truth is you don't really know that much about him. But you don't know that much about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln either. Or a lot of other well-known historical figures who have served important roles in human history. So if you're honest, you, you know a little bit about him but you don't know him. Now what happens is, is when you read a really good biography or when you really dive into learning more about a certain character, um, I'll tell you an author I really enjoy is David McCullough. He will make these people come to life for you. I read a book that he wrote about the Wright brothers while I was going to seminary in Dayton, Ohio. And man, I could see their airplane flying around Dayton while I was listening to this audio book on my way back and forth to seminary classes, you know, it just comes to life. And so in a way I could say, I know Wilbur and Orville Wright. Now I don't know them personally, but I know these guys because I've learned enough about them that they're real to me. Okay. Now, many people I think would say that about their relationship with Jesus. I know him like that. But do I know him personally? See, yesterday I heard my mother telling my daughter Ruthie about her sister, my Aunt Irene. I knew Irene. I knew her. Now, my kids have never met her. But I knew her. And I could tell all about her to my kids and through me, they could know her. My Aunt Irene was Down syndrome. She lived to be 70-something, and she was a delightful human being. She had this peculiar way of talking and everything, and so I could bring her to life right now for you, but I won't. I'm just telling you that, see, I knew her, and I can bring her to life in my memory, and then even though my kids didn't know her, they know her through me. This may be the most linear sermon I've preached in five years. Because you probably know where I'm going next. If I tell you enough about my Aunt Irene or about my Jesus, and you know I know, 
then pretty soon you know because I know. And you begin to realize that you recognize the sort of things that he would say. This is Gospel of Luke, by the way. And you know who was really good at helping you to know what Jesus would say? The Gospel of John. John has got more red ink in his gospel than any of the others because he wrote down what Jesus said. And if you read that red ink in there about Jesus and his word, you know the sound of his voice when you hear it. If you don't know as though you've had this intimate personal relationship with him, you at least know because you have heard him speak. And you know the kind of things he says, and you know the kind of things he never says. And I know because I've been in this walk with him for a long time. People will say to me, well, I think Jesus would approve of that today. And the answer is, no, he wouldn't. No, I, I know what he says. And in his nature as God, the truth is, is if he said it then, he says it now. It doesn't change. You see, I know my Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know him personally? Well, I'm going to just lead you towards a way of thinking about that. Now, there's a lot more in the sermon notes here, by the way. And learning is part of that discipleship pathway that you've got to embrace. I urge you to. But I want you to hear that you will get to know him by familiarizing yourself with what he says. And if you think about it, maybe some of us like romances that are built around, let's say, letter writing. You know, people write letters back and forth, or maybe now they do it through various other technologies. But the idea that we get to know each other without having physically been in the presence of one another. So we, we, we have people who, we know people, we perhaps experienced it ourselves, who have these great, intimate, wonderful relationships that began without physical contact. The intimacy was in the exchange of thoughts and ideas and memories, personal tastes. And you get to know people. I mean, really, in, in, modern, in our modern world, lots of people get to know the, the partner intimately through physical contact. And then afterwards, they spend years learning each other the other way. And with Jesus, you have to learn him the way you do with there's, when there's no physical contact. But you can. And what you realize is there's a whole lot written between the lines that you know because it's there, but you can't see it. You can't point at it. And you realize you know Jesus, not just because you know his words. If you memorize the Gospel of John, not only will you know the things he says, but you'll know the heart behind what he says. See, there are things that people want me to tell them with proof text, like, does the Bible say this is good and that's bad? No, but if you read the entire Bible, you see the personality of God just leaping off the page and God's personality clearly indicates God's 
traits and tendencies regarding lots of things that you can't point to a particular verse and single out. See, knowing God with your heart and mind, which is a theme I've been working for years and years and years, it's like that. Oh, by the way, Adrian and I are going to start a podcast this week that's all about knowing God with heart and mind. Should be hysterical. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but, but there's where you really begin to shift. So the last thing I want to say to you is, is you know Jesus when you can experience the Jesus that's between the lines of the red ink in your Bible. But you know what really facilitates that? When you make that leap of faith and put all your faith in Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. See, that's what happened to Lee Strobel. He got to a point where he couldn't deny the truth he'd uncovered. And then he had to say, now what do I do with this? And in that moment, he said, I guess I have to admit that if you're real, I should know you. I should be in a relationship with you. If I've proven that you are resurrected and ascended and live, and, and live eternally through us in the Holy Spirit, then I guess I need to be on board with that. And so he makes this leap of faith. And a leap of faith is the phrase that means you go from uncertainty to uncertainty, but gambling that you finally got it right. <laughs> or to put it the way scripture puts it, um, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Well, you know, once you make that leap of faith, two things happen. You are born again. That is, God takes the old nature and crucifies it, basically, and the new nature is born in you. Albeit an embryo, there is a new person in you that's emerging and growing, and it's the spirit driven nature. The next thing that happens is, is all of a sudden it gets a whole lot easier to recognize the sound of Jesus's voice. And you begin to hear him speaking through the people around you, through your circumstances. You just know that you know that you know, and you can't explain it, but it's just certain. You know, it just is. And, and this is where the Holy Spirit takes hold in your life. You also know what isn't the voice of God. You become very adept at recognizing the counterfeits. And brothers and sisters, we're living in an age where the counterfeits are dangerously prolific. And we are in danger in these last days of being condemned because we bought the lie. So the last thing I want to tell you is, is if you believe as I do that there's a judgment day coming. Scripture assures us that there's a judgment day and in the sermon notes, you'll see a box that has several scripture references to this. But I'm going to assume that with me, you believe there's a judgment day if only because you seek justice. I mean, if we're all really honest, the truth is we wanna see justice and because of that, we want to see a judgment day. We're just hoping we come out on the right side of that, if we're honest. 
So how do you suppose it'll go for you on Judgment Day? When you hear people around you claiming that they have the one true way to permanent salvation through Jesus Christ, how does that make you feel? Or when you hear that that some sanctimonious, holier-than-thou Christian person that you know has a secret dark side and it comes out all the time when people think no one's looking. And you ask God, is that just? When you realize that there's counterfeits everywhere and the enemy is very good at presenting you with something that seems like it's the real deal, but you're not sure what to believe. If you believe like me that the Lord is ultimately the most just and gracious of all beings in all of creation, and and he's above creation because he made it, right? If he is ultimately the source of true justice and grace, then then you say, now what what do I do with the fact that some people will be condemned on judgment day. How do I deal with that? How do I know I won't be condemned? And what do I do with the fact that God will condemn somebody else? How do I wrestle with that, you say? Here's what I think. By the way, Katrina helped me put this last bit together because she and I were talking about it before she left. And and, and I, I said, I think it comes down to whether you know the voice and the person of Jesus. I'm not going to try to tell you what I think Judgment Day is going to look like. I'm not that good. I don't know that much. But I suspect that as God's word, as the being who is the very heart and mind of God, He is then the truth of God in his very being. And I suspect on Judgment Day, whether you never heard the gospel in your entire life or whether you've been in church all your life, but you've been believing a counterfeit lie, I suspect it will come down to God saying, when you stand for judgment, do you know this guy? Do you know who this is over here? And your answer will determine your eternal fate. That much I think we can all agree is the Christian view of Judgment Day. Whether you know Jesus, the real Jesus. This is why I recommend that in these last days we dedicate ourselves to knowing the real Jesus because your eternity is going to depend on it. And if that doesn't bother you, then imagine the eternity of the precious little ones you love. Here's the thing. Jesus said, bless the little ones. You'd be better off if you came to me like they do. What do you think a little one standing before Jesus on Judgment Day is going to do when they see Jesus? Hey, Jesus, how's it going? I've missed you. Amen. Let it be so for us. God bless us in this hearing of your word and use it to transform our nature for your name's sake. Help us to know you, Jesus.
like never before. Amen. Thank you.